Welcome to Carl Chins Birmingham, brought to you by History West Midlands On Air. Well-known broadcaster and author Professor Carl Chin honours the working people, some famous but mostly forgotten, who shaped the history of Birmingham. He tells their stories as only he can, applauding their courage in adversity while recognising they were sinners as well as saints. Today we're going to take a walk along the north side of Derry End, one of Birmingham's most historic and ancient streets. But there's so much to talk about, we're only going to go from Milk Street, opposite Digworth Coach Station, to just below the rainbow on the corner of Adderley Street. That is High Street Derry End. The rest of Derry End is for another day. Let's hear it for New York goes a hit song. Well, locally, what about let's hear it for Derry End? Why? Because Derry Tend is one of the oldest and most important place names in the history of Birmingham, and yet it seems doomed to disappear from the 21st century city. By contrast, the name of Digbeth has waxed to such an extent that it is no longer just a street between High Street, Derry Tend, and the Bull Ring. Now it is also used to define a large area. To the north of Digbeth, the street, the new district of Digbeth seems to encompass all those streets from Park Street almost all the way up to Camp Hill, while to the south it embraces all those streets below the Bullring Market and again almost up to Camp Hill. In reality, many of these streets actually lie in Derry Tend. The shrinking of Derry Tend and the expansion of Digbeth has led to confusions and inaccuracies in official communications, on radio stations, in newspapers and on a plethora of websites. Many addresses are given us on Digbeth High Street. There is no such place and never has been such a place. Other addresses are also given us in Digbeth when they are not. The Digbeth campus of South Birmingham College, the Irish Centre and the Custard Factory are not in Digbeth. All three are in Derry Tend. As for the Rainbow Pub, it is often described as in High Street, Derry Tend, Digbeth, for it is in neither as it is on the corner of Adley Street and High Street, Borsley. Does all this matter given popular usage? Well, in my opinion, it does matter. If we care about our historical place names and the people that lived in them, of course it matters. And it does matter for all those Brummies who grew up in Derry Tend and now watch unhappily as their district is pushed out from history. So I'm starting this walk through Derry Tend opposite Ray Street and the Digbeth Coach Station, just above where High Street Derry Tend begins, above Derry Tend Bridge, which carries traffic over the River Ray, hidden from view well below. Now, in the later Middle Ages, the Ray split into two channels just by Ray Street. One went along what is now Milk Street, whilst the other went down what became Floodgate Street, and then they joined up again. The land in between the two channels, which is now occupied by South and City College, was known as Derry Tend Island. The Milk Street channel is long gone, but its former route marks the boundary between High Street, Derry Tend and Digbeth. Now, before we move along, why is Derry Tend High Street so significant, and what does the name mean? Well, where I'm standing is right in the middle of the valley of the River A. To my left is Camp Hill, and to my right are the slopes upon which the Bull Ring is to be found, and above which is the ridge upon which Birmingham city centre is built, and which is approached by the aptly named Hill Street. We can't see the Ray hereabouts today as it's so deeply culverted, although we can look at it in Cannon Hill Park before it disappears below Belgrave Middleway. Because it is then lost from sight, many people would not even realise that there is a valley of the River Ray. 
that both the river and the valley were crucial to Birmingham's rapid development after its Lord of the Manor gained the right to hold a market in 1166. The ray was vital to provide the water for Birmingham smiths in cooling down the metal that they had hammered into shape. And it was as vital for the tanners of leather who needed lots of water to clean and soften the hides that were to be tanned. And the ray was also significant for connecting Birmingham to other places locally by way of its crossing points. The most important one of which is where I'm standing, between Derry End High Street and Digbeth. Here, a number of important regional roads came together. There were those from Wolverhampton, which came along the modern Soho Road. The road from Dudley, which went through Smerwick to Dudley Street by the Bullring. The road from Hales Owen, which followed the line of the Hagley Road. And the road from Stratford and Warwick, which went along the present-day Stratford Road into High Street Borsley and then High Street Derrit End. The coming together of these routes passed St Martin's Church and Birmingham's Markets. I've walked just a few yards down from the Big Bull's Head on the corner of Mill Street to Derry Tend Bridge. And that little walk emphasises why Derry Tend is so inextricably bound to Birmingham. Because the Bull Ring is within sight and the spire of St Martin's is just above me. Whereas Aston Parish Church is a long way away. So, located distantly from that church, Derry Tend had its own Chapel of Ease. It was easier for the local parishioners to get to. This was St John's Chapel, which was just down from me and on the opposite side of High Street, Derry End, close to where the Irish Centre now stands. So, let's go back into history. After Birmingham's Lord gained the right to have a market in 1166, the start of the Bullring Markets, the hamlet of Derry End was pulled ever deeper into a relationship with its nearer neighbour. And soon after, it was probably granted to the de Birminghams, the Lords of the Manor, by their overlords, the Paganals of Dudley. Recently, the assiduous researcher, George Demidovich, made a discovery that has transformed our understanding of medieval Birmingham. He came across the rentals for the borough of Birmingham in 1296. These indicated a number of streets, one of which was Deergate Street. This Deergate Street became Deergate End in a document from 1381 and hence Derrit End. The spelling of Deergate Street solves the debate about the meaning of Derrit End. Some historians had argued that the Dur element was derived from the Welsh word for water, whilst the rest of the name is from Yet End, signifying Gate End. Hence, it was the Watergate End because of the proximity of the River Ray. However, the 1296 entry strengthens the case put forward by Joseph Tolman, a 19th century expert on Birmingham. In his opinion, Derrit End is from Dur Yet End and means the Deergate End. End was used to signify an outlying hamlet or the edge of a settlement. In this case, it indicated that Derrit End was at the end of Birmingham. As for the Deergate, this would have led into Over Park, recalled in Park Street, right by the Bullring, where the Lords of the Men are kept deer for hunting. This documentary evidence for Derrit End is bolstered by discoveries made over the last few years in archaeological excavations. They revealed signs of houses on Derrit End Island in the 1200s. It appears that they were abandoned later in that century, but pottery from the same sites indicated renewed activity here in the early 16th century. From the same period, these excavations also uncovered evidence of a tannery and of metal working. So, 
High Street Dairy 10 begins at Milk Street and I've just come up Milk Street a little way. Today, that street goes from the High Street to the junction of Borsley Street with Little Ann Street and thence becomes Barn Street. It's an old way though that is shown on the first map of Birmingham by Wesley in 1731 and it's then called Rope Walk on Bradford's map of 1750. In those days, Rope Walk, Milk Street, ran through fields but didn't reach Derry 10 Hyde Street simply because of the development along that road. Instead, it ended at Moores Road, just to my left. Handsome's map of 1778, however, does introduce the name of Milk Street, but it remains in a rural setting, and perhaps that led to a name associated with agriculture. Over the next few decades, Derry Tend and Digbeth became more and more built over, but it wasn't until 1880 that a clearance of property led to Milk Street running from Moores Row to Derry Tend High Street via what had been Meeting House Yard. Today, though, Milk Street is bereft of residents, as is most of Derry Tend. I've stepped just a few feet down Fugget Street, where there are some railings, and I'm looking through the railings now, well down to the coveted River Ray. Opposite me and behind the new building of Southland City College is an older building. It's a striking old school, Fluggett Street School. It was opened in 1891, closed in 1940, and then the building was taken over by St. Michael's Roman Catholic School. It later became part of Hall Green College and now is part of Southland City College. It was designed by the famous Birmingham architectural practice of Martin and Chamberlain, and it's cracking looking at it with its red brick from Birmingham and it's almost got like a, a turret above it as if it's part of a castle. There's so much to say about this street, Fluggett Street. In fact, there's so much to say, I'm going to have to save most of it for another broadcast. But we do need some information about it to make sense of our walk. Like so many of our streets, Fluggett Street has its roots deep in rural Birmingham. In the late 18th century, it boasted a public house called, ark at this, Spring Gardens. Spring Gardens in the middle of Fluggett Street. The historian John Alfred Langford was born nearby in Bradford Street in 1815 and grew up in this vicinity. He explained that the pub was named after, quote, the very beautiful gardens, which extended from the back of the house down to the banks of the clear and rippling River Ray. Would that that view was still with us. Langford vividly recalled that these spring gardens were eminently pretty and well worth a visit. However, Floodgate Street itself was aptly named, and in October 1793, the publican's family was alarmed by some mournful but indistinct cries, which evidently proceeded from persons in great distress. Mr. Fallows very humanely got up, and taking a servant and lights with him, he found a man and woman nearly exhausted and clinging to the floodgates, and thus keeping their heads above water. In a very few minutes more, but for the benevolent exertions of Mr. Fallows, they must have been drowned, for they were become so exceedingly weak that they could scarcely keep their hold until he and the servants could reach them. And it was then, with great difficulty, they were taken out. Writing in 1841, Langford noted that the house of Mr. Fallows was still there, but its name is all that remains to it of its former glory. The river is thick, black and turgid. There are no trees, nor flowers, nor shady walks, nor summer houses on its banks. By then, Floodgate Street was covered with factories, workshops and back-to-back -back houses, and it was one of the poorest parts of Birmingham. In 1904, Dr. Robertson, Birmingham's medical officer of health, commissioned a report into this area. Smoky, gloomy and sunless, the district was home to just under 10,000 Brummies. They belonged to a city that was proclaimed as the best governed city in the world, 
but they did not benefit from such a proud title. The general death rate for Birmingham as a whole was just over 19 deaths per 1,000 people. In the Flunkett Street neighbourhood, that figure rose to a disgraceful 31.5. Whilst in Alliston Street, just up the road, the general death rate soared horribly to almost 50. Measles, scarlet fever, diphtheria, diarrhoea, tuberculosis, then known as consumption, bronchitis, pneumonia, pleurisy and premature birth all killed many more folk locally in proportion than in a middle class or even better off working class neighbourhood. Bad health and early death stalked the Flunkett Street neighbourhood, preying upon the poor. Too many were clammed, hungry, too often to build up their resistance to illness and disease. Weakened by hunger, the local folk were worn down further by living in badly built, damp and cold homes that were infested with vermin through no fault of their own. Their dire living conditions were made even worse by a lack of fresh air and by privies shared by two or more families. These were not water closets, rather they had beneath them a pan to collect everything. These pans were of the cheapest and slimmest construction. They were emptied irregularly and were often broken. The stench they gave off pervaded the air. An outside tap in the yard gave water to a large number of families, sometimes making up two or three hundred men, women and children. Most homes had only an undrained sink that gave no facilities for the disposal of slop water. It was so difficult to get water into a house and then remove it that Dr Robertson, the medical officer of health, was rather surprised to find so many people keeping their homes and themselves clean. He may have been surprised, but the poor of Birmingham wouldn't have been surprised. They strove to be clean and respectable. Some ill-informed and prejudiced outsiders blamed the poor for their poverty and the awful conditions in which they lived, and Floodgate Street itself was damned as unsavoury. Such assertions were both a fallacy and an insult. The poverty line was put then at an income of around about a pound a week for a husband, wife and two children. In the Flunkett Street neighbourhood, most men were unskilled labourers or street traders. Even if they found a full week's work, an unlikely event, they could never earn more than 17 and 6 pence a week. That's just 87 and a half pence a week. It was impossible for a man on such wages to keep his family, even if he spent nothing on drink or tobacco. His only chance of just about getting by was for his wife to work. In a factory, she might be lucky to pull in about 10 bob, 50 pence. But if she took in washing or homework, she'd graft all week for the pitiful sum of five or six shillings, 25 to 30 pence. In this, one of the most prosperous cities in the richest nation in the world, the poor were hidden from view and forgotten. Forgotten, that is, bar for themselves. Through kinship networks, strong ties of neighbourliness, mothers especially fought back against the poverty that beset them and their families. I mentioned Moore's Row when I was talking about Milk Street, and that's where I've come to now. It's only about 50 yards long, stretching between Flugert Street and Milk Street, right at the back of Flugert Street School. Now, Moore's Row was shown on Hanson's map of 1778. It's a low-lying spot, very close to the River Ray, and as such, it would have been boggy and like a moor, perhaps leading to the name Moore's Row. But it's spelt not M-O-O-R, it's spelt like the surname, M. O O R E. And then in old spellings, there's an apostrophe, the possessive apostrophe, and an S. So it, it seems like it belonged to somebody called Moore. That interpretation leads us to a fascinating book on the folklore of Warwickshire by Roy Palmer, which gives a most gripping account of the naming of Moore's Row. This account goes back to a man called Tom Langley, who was a policeman, and he was first stationed in Digworth in 1927, just up the road, the Digworth Police Station. One night, 
Just after midnight, he was walking in Faisy Street just behind us, talking to the sergeants when they heard a terrible and spine-chilling scream coming from the direction of Milk Street. It crescendo for some seconds and stopped suddenly. Tom thought someone had been killed, but the old sergeant stood still saying it was a sound that he would hear again. And although it might be put down to an engine, some of the old Broms round here say it's a ghost, but we are paid to catch thieves and not ghosts, said the sergeant. Hearing the sound again two years later, Tom chatted with a former policeman who was now a night watchman at a factory in Allison Street, just up the road. The father of this night watchman had also been in the police force in the district and he had recounted an old story. It goes back to when Prince Rupert and the Royalist forces attacked Parliamentarian Birmingham in 1643 and when they broke through the defences, they sacked the town. By then, thankfully, many of the people had fled to the fields of Edgebaston or else to Winds and Green and the Heathland around there. However, one man named Moore did not run away. He stayed here with his wife and five children in a cottage in Milk Street. It is said that three of Rupert's men dragged the Moors into the street and beheaded all of them. The last to be murdered was a girl of 13. After seeing the vile deeds, she screamed before she was slaughtered. The night watchman felt that her last terrible cry was still echoing down the years. I've come back up Flunkett Street from Moores Row and I'm standing on the corner with High Street Derry Tent opposite the new building of Southland City College. It's right above the River Ray and still on Derry Tent Bridge. And I'm looking at a stunning and grand mosaic mural. It's called the Kennedy Memorial. Its designer and sculptor was Kenneth Budd. Whilst he had been working on the fixing of another mural at Holloway Circus in Birmingham, his colleague, Alan Kings, had met a man called Father Maguire. Now, Father Maguire was the priest at St. Catherine's Roman Catholic Church on the Horse Fair, and he was also chairman of the Kennedy Memorial Committee. This was a group of Irish Brummies who were determined to commemorate the life of President John F. Kennedy, who had been assassinated on November the 22nd, 1963. Shortly after that, in Birmingham, the Lord Mayor had launched a memorial fund. Britain made little progress. According to Kenneth Budd, as he wrote down in his notebooks, the Irish community was somewhat incensed at this lack of response for a son of old Ireland, and they asked if they might take over the fundraising. To this, the mayor readily agreed, but promised that the corporation would provide a suitable site if the Catholic committee raised the money and organised the memorial. The committee had looked at designs from Ireland, but were disappointed, and learning of the horse fair mural, Father Maguire invited Kenneth Budd to meet him. He and his friend left with a brief that was truly Irish and would have required acres of wall space and to include all the essential items. Nevertheless, as Bud stresses, it appeared that the central theme should be Kennedy's attempt to integrate the black and white communities with some indication of the background of international strife, his Irish ancestry and family life. So, once the horse fair mural was finished, Kenneth Bud was able to design the Kennedy Memorial. Kenneth explained that the mosaic arc was to be 40 feet long by 10 feet high, flanked on either side by 10 foot square green quartzite panels, leaving suitable inscriptions. On the left, there was to be a dedication to John F. Kennedy, and on the right, a suitable quotation from one of his speeches. Kenneth Budd recollected that he'd read somewhere something along the lines of, there are no white or coloured signs on the graveyards of battle. Later, he spent hours trying to find it again, but never succeeded. In fact, what Kenneth remembered was a speech made by Kennedy on June the 19th, 1963, when he submitted his civil rights bill to Congress. And in that speech, he proclaimed, 
There are no white or coloured signs on the foxholes or graveyards of battle. Those words are so powerful even today. So, with the commission secured, Kenneth got on with the job and by June 1968 the Kennedy Memorial was ready to fix on site close to St Chad's Roman Catholic Cathedral, the first Catholic cathedral consecrated in England since the Reformation. The setting was a convex mural wall. In front of it and running along its full length was a water feature fed by a waterfall which cascaded down a small rockery on the left hand side. It was unveiled by the Lord Mayor, Alderman Charles Simpson, and the Irish Ambassador to the United Kingdom, Mr John Malloy, on Monday, July the 8th, 1968. Sadly, it was dismantled in 2007 when the St Chad's Circus was reconstructed. And unhappily, only parts of that stunning Kennedy Memorial were saved. The water fountain went, and much more besides. What was saved included the faces of President Kennedy and of Martin Luther King, the great activist for the rights of black people in America. There were also five faces from the crowd scene and the two green quartzite stone panels on either side of the mosaic. Thankfully, Kenneth's son Oliver had the original drawings used by his father and he used them to make an exact replica of the 1968 mosaic. This is now on a plinth on the corner of Derry End High Street and Flunker Street, facing across from the Irish Centre. OK then, from the Kennedy Memorial, I'm going to walk along Derry End High Street to the Old Crown on the corner with Heath Mill Lane, passing as I do the Custard Factory. I'm now looking at the Custard Factory from very close to the corner of Gibb Street and it's a most impressive, vibrant and inspiring place. Indeed, it is now regarded as the most powerful collection of creative and digital businesses, independent retailers and event venues outside London. So why is it called the Custard Factory? Well, until the mid-1960s, this building was Devonshire House and it was the headquarters of Alfred Bird & Sons Limited, famed for Bird's Custard Powder. The company was founded by Alfred Bird, an experimental chemist up by the Bullring, who came up with the idea of custard powder. But this red brick and terracotta factory was built under the leadership of his son in 1902. It closed down after the company was bought out and eventually moved to Banbury. As a teenager though, I recall this place when it was derelict and it's so exciting to see it now revived. This almost brings us to the end of our short walk along the north side of High Street Derry's End, but we still have one most important landmark to reach, the Old Crown. The Old Crown is on the corner of Heathville Lane, but before we discuss this wonderful old building, I've come down the road a little to the stunning blue brick railway viaduct that crosses it. This is a tremendous piece of engineering that allows trains to travel across the valley of the River Ray from Camp Hill to the higher ground where Moore Street Station and New Street Station are located. As for Heathmill Lane, it takes its name from the Heathfield pasture of which Roger Foxall became a tenant in 1524 at a rent of 20 shillings. Two years later, Heathmill was mentioned as leased to Gilbert Webb and later that century, the widow and children of John Pretty claimed the Heath Mill by virtue of a lease said to be signed by Edward Birmingham, the Lord of the Manor, whilst he was a prisoner in the Tower of London and dated the 11th of October, 1532. He was the last of his line, by the way. The original course of the ray had probably been diverted to create the necessary power for the Heath Mill. And by the middle years of the 17th century, the mill was in the hands of John Cooper, 
1673, he was accused of raising the height of the water above the mill so that wagons could not pass through the ford of the River Ray by the bridge. By the early 19th century, Heath Mill was in the possession of a sword cutler. This one was called James Woolley, and it became known as Woolley's Mill or Derry Tent Forge. It disappeared soon after, and its buildings became part of adjacent factories. The mill house itself stood at what is now the junction of Heath Mill Lane and Lower Faisy Street. Interestingly, David Cox, the famed landscape painter, many of whose paintings are of North Wales scenes and are in Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, well, he was born in Heath Mill Lane in 1783. Cox's obituary in the Birmingham Daily Post hailed him as the contemporary of Turner and Girton and one of the small band of artists who have made the English school of watercolour painters the finest in the world. Not bad for a backstreet kid. I've finally reached the outside of the old crowd. I'm still in Heath Mill Lane and I'm looking across at the splendid Derry 10 Free Library. It was opened in 1866 and it did what it says on the front of the building. It provided books for free for the people of this neighbourhood. What a thrilling thing that was when before books were out of reach of the poor. Anyway, the old crowd. Now, this building makes an appearance in the very first description of Birmingham that we've got. It was by the Tudor traveller, John Leland, in about 1538. He came here by way of Kings Norton to Camp Hill. And then, listen to this, he went down as pretty a street as ever I've entered. Derry Tend High Street, or Dirty, as he called it. This is Leland's description. In it dwell smiths and cutlers, and there is a brook that divideth this street from Birmingham. It is a hamlet. And there is at the end of Dirty a proper chapel, a mansion house of timber, hard on the bank as the brook runneth down. The chapel was that of St John's Derry Tent, which I mentioned earlier, close to where the Irish centre now stands. And the mansion house of timber later became the Old Crown pub. In Leland's time, it had been the meeting place of the Guild of the Holy Cross. Set up in 1392, this body was to be broken up under Henry VIII's policy of dissolving monasteries and other religious bodies after he split with the Catholic Church. The Guild had operated with a variety of functions. In particular, it undertook specific public duties for the benefit of the people of Birmingham. It relieved 12 poor persons and provided them with an almshouse in Digworth, and it kept in good reparation two great stone bridges and divers foul and dangerous highways. Leland's description of Birmingham makes plain why the black and white timber frame building of the Old Crown is so important to all Brummies. For although it has been changed and added to, its historical structure is powerful because it strikes deep into our past and bonds us with the time when Birmingham was a growing market town, bustling with traders and manufacturers and preparing to thrust itself onto the world stage as a city of international repute. All of us grew up thinking that the Old Crown was built in 1368, for has not that fact been proclaimed for generations in bold letters outside the pub? However, archaeological work suggests that it was more likely erected between 1450 and 1500. Whatever the case, certainly the Old Crown was impressive enough for Leland to mention it. Indeed, the only other Birmingham buildings he comments upon are St John's, the Chapel and the Parish Church of St Martin's. Then, in 1589, we know that the deeds of the Crown House, as it was by then called, are mentioned in a document related to John Dixon of Birmingham. He was a carrier 
and given the importance of High Street Derry End as a route into Birmingham, it is obvious that the old crown must have been a good base for his business. Originally, the building had only a ground floor with a large central hall around which were smaller rooms, but an upper floor was added to the old crown in the 1600s. Then, in 1673, an Edward Barber was given as the tenant, and it was stated that he was using the building as an inn. Within a few years, the old crown was split first into two properties and then into three. Passing through the hands of various owners, by the mid-19th century, the old crown had fallen into disrepair. It was then that it was bought by Joshua Tolman Smith. A devoted inquirer into Birmingham's past, it is doubtful whether the old crown would have survived without his dedication and determination. In 1851, Birmingham Corporation included the building in an improvement scheme intending to knock it down. Tolman Smith successfully resisted that attempt as he did others in 1856 and 1861. In his own words, this benefactor to our city explained that it is somewhat hard that I should have been obliged at my own trouble and expense to save for the town a relic of antiquity which is for the credit and interest of the town and certainly not for my personal profit. Tolman Smith's words echo strongly today because in the later 20th century, the old crown once again required major restoration work if it were to be passed on to future generations. And once again, a big-hearted family took up the cause for that essential work. It was carried out by the Brennans, an Irish Brummie family. They resolved to breathe new life into the old crown through respecting its past. At their own expense and with no support, they have given back to us, the people of Birmingham, one of the most vital and important buildings in our city. We owe them a great debt of gratitude. Well, we're nearly at the end of our walk along part of Dennis End High Street, and to the end of that street I've come, to the shops just down from the Rainbow on the corner of Adley Street. That's where High Street Derry 10 finishes and Bordley High Street begins. It is just a short walk by distance, but a long walk through time. And it's a walk which highlights why the name of Derry 10 should not be abandoned. Very few people now live here as its folk were pushed out in the post-war redevelopment of Birmingham. Despite this loss, many fine buildings remain as does the late 18th and early 19th century street pattern. So let's hear it for Derry 10 and call it by its correct name. Colchins Birmingham is a History West Midlands production. For more information, visit the website at www.historywm.com.